0: Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston.
1: Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field.
0: Welcome to the podcast. This is episode four of How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer. I am your host, Dr. Ronald Bladé, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Dr. Jeffrey Meyerhart from the Dana-Farber.
1: In this episode, we are joined by two professionals from the Brigham and Dana-Farber. Dr. Nadine McCleary and Dr. John Saltzman review the treatment of rectal cancer in an elderly, frail patient with rectal cancer.
0: You'll first hear some of the basics and introduction of the case from the Brigham and Women's and Dana-Farber's Collaborative Colorectal Cancer Team Conference. This man I operated on, well, he's 86 years old, but we operated on him I think almost a decade ago for a right colon tumor, and then he did great, and it it went on his merry way, and which brings up the question: When you get somebody who's 76, 77, you do a colonoscopy a year, and then the guy goes, "You know, I'm not interested in anymore." And I heard on the radio that I don't need screening after 75. Now, screening is different than surveillance. Right. I try to keep telling them, but make a long story short, he comes back with what, quote, a hemorrhoid, which ends up being a large uh, adenocarcinoma of the distal rectum and anus. He's actually, growing out his anus, and he doesn't want to eat because it hurts to eat. And, and, so, and so he uh, was told. In it part, hurts to eat, or it hurts to poop. Hurts to poop, so he doesn't eat. I, right. You're right, exactly. So he's lost quite a bit of weight. Also, because of quite a bit of weight loss, he's gotten weaker and came in in a wheelchair. Although he can get up and get on the bed, he's quite weak. So he was told, "This is you know, God's will," by an outside private care doctor, because he was actually quite, you know, feeling quite frowning with it. I said, "Look, at least let us divert you." And let's see if you can then get some, you know, be able to eat. You don't have to go on for treatment. But the radiation doctor out there, uh, community said, you know, we can radiate you. But we talked. He said maybe we can do a diversion and then at least irradiate without plus minus oral chemo.
2: What about just, I mean, is this crazy? Is he totally too weak to just take the thing out and spare him the month and a half of coming
0: well, in and out? He is now. Yeah, he's lost 20, 30 pounds. And he was starting, He's only in the... Mid hundreds, anyways, for his weight, so he's down to about 120. So that, uh, so we diverted him on the hopes that you know, his pain will be much less and that he won't have food fear and be able to gain weight. Mm-hmm. And then, and that will be two or three months before he gains weight. So in that time, we thought we'd radiate. i would just interested in. So Harvey, who do you, when you see somebody, who do you uh, say, look, go back to, Dr. Ronnie and Dr. Lede and get diverted before I,
2: treat. Yeah, and I, would, I was saying, they have to be pretty symptomatic in terms of obstructive symptoms, and especially if it's the point of abdominal distension, and that's somebody that, Because I, although Jenny's right, and I'm not sure, and all the time I've been in, I've ever seen somebody completely obstruct during treatment. So, now,
0: with neoadjuvant chemo, uh, how fast does something shrink? Because we did a lady, beginning of this week, uh, we just had neoadjuvant chemo sort of, off, what's happening is a lot of off-trap prospect patients are being kind of done and delivered to us, and she had a very good response. So, how fast would you expect one treatment, two treatments, there, something to shrink?
1: Shrink, but they're not symptomatic. Correct. Not symptomatic. or less symptomatic. We're not at the I don't think there's so much patient I mean, there are patients who don't shrink at all. Yeah. I well, no. I mean, use of radiation, I feel like they open up within two, by the second week or yeah. third. Yeah. Maybe we're onto something. Maybe Sometimes we should study this. Longer.
2: I mean, it could be as simple as like, you know, the low ones, just do a rectal exam. And or or a, a
0: symptom of, uh, a questionnaire. Yeah.
2: But, yeah, but then sorry. you're combining, you're confounding it with the, getting the, the chemo. but.
0: But do you really care what the tumor does if they find that they can pass gas true. better and they're not yeah. going to the, uh, not straight for the Kind of how I bathroom. feel about
2: fecal incontinence. I don't care what the study show. I care how care what right. they say. Yeah. Right. That's true. It might be interesting to know.
0: And just the other issue is frailty tests. Do uh, you guys use any? Get out of the chair and walk
2: in. Yeah. 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 Can you climb kind of two, yeah. two flights? Yeah. Do
0: you have them do it in front
1: of you? No. We we'll watched them get up in the bed and on the <laughs> table. I mean, there have been many times we looked at each other after, you know, after the two of us helped the patient
0: get up, get, get from the chair to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe surgery wasn't such a good idea for this one. As far, speaking about fertility, as far as I'm concerned, if a person has a cancer at age 80 and they're still playing tennis at age 85 and walking around at age 90, I, I still think they need surveillance. And I tell yeah, because, people, you can yeah. take the prep yeah. and walk in here that you have that strength, no matter what age you are, you should continue to get
3: surveyed Take Yeah. three a, years, every five years. I mean, it comes down to what do you think their life expectancy is outside of the cancer diagnosis, and if it's a reasonable life expectancy from a cardiovascular, or pulmonary, other standpoint, I think it's reason, reasonable to keep surveying them, for sure. But
1: yeah.
2: so once you start to get worried that they won't tolerate the PrEP, then right. you can stop? Yeah,
0: because I think what will happen is we're losing these very healthy 80-year-olds to a dropping of their surveillance right. and then they're coming in uh, with, with later cancers. So we're here with uh, Nadine McCleary and we're gonna talk about frailty in colorectal cancer treatment. So Nadine, tell us a little bit about yourself first.
2: So hi everyone, I'm Nadine Jackson McCleary. I am a GI oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. I am an assistant professor of medicine here, and uh, much of my work, uh, research work and interest is in uh, care of older adults with uh, colorectal cancer. One of the concerns I have is that a lot of our treatment information is is somewhat limited in terms of this population, Uh, but there is some data that we can rely on in terms of how to treat, how to approach treatment decisions for this population.
0: We had presented a case at our morning conference Mm -hmm. where a man who I operated on almost I think 12, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then he felt well, did well from this right colon cancer. And then there was was this, I think, this confusion in the follow-up of surveillance colonoscopy versus screening colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. So he was dropped after five years from any colonoscopy, and he eventually developed a second cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he came in, he had not recognized it, had lost a lot of weight, and could barely get up from a chair. So there was talk about not treating him at all. So how do you judge when to operate or give chemo on these people that are alive and cognizant but very, very weak?
2: Yeah, so there's a notion of frailty that is is not perfectly defined, but there's some great guidelines. You already mentioned one of them. There's actually a test that you can do which is called a timed up and go test, which is how long does it take for someone to stand independently from a seated position without using their armrests, really using their, their lower leg muscles and stand, rise, walk, Um, a certain distance, return, and then sit again without using the armchair. And you already mentioned this gentleman is unable to even stand, right? Um, So that tells you right away his performance status, which is really subjective, but his performance status is probably a two, because he is frail enough that he can't independently move. We know that these patients who uh, aren't able to do kind of their own um, independent activities of daily living, things like shopping, uh, buying things, purchasing, um, managing their finances, uh, driving, those patients are gonna be a bit more frail, but certainly those who are unable to perform self-care activities such as bathing and dressing. So you can visually imagine this gentleman, if he can't rise from a seated position, is probably unable to really take care of himself. So then you can project, if I do surgery on this gentleman, what would his recovery look like? So it's not my skill, because we know you as a surgeon, all of our surgeons are very skilled in doing the surgery itself, but how well will he recover? Because that's really what we're looking at, the post-op recovery, the morbidity and potential mortality of that resection, And then thinking a bit further, if this gentleman requires post-operative therapy, would he be able to to receive that therapy? So those are some of the subjective and, and a little bit objective information that we could use right off the bat.
0: So on that test, is there a time that you expect them to get up walk a distance, turn around and come back? 30 seconds, a minute, or just it's, doing it?
2: It's doing it, essentially. You can use that. There is a time um, that is required is under a few minutes uh, for patients to be able to do that independently, but you really are looking at what the patient's able to do, and whatever time they give, if it's beyond a couple of minutes, you know that the, that person is a bit more frail. Yeah. But there are other kind of looser uh, measures that have been actually very well studied. So if a patient has fallen more than once in six months, their prognosis is poor, and that also can be used. If a patient tells you, you know, I have stairs in my home, well- Do you use those stairs? Are you able to get up and down in those stairs? That's very different. And and is it that you get up in the morning and then you go downstairs and you stay there all day and then you go up at night? This is someone who acknowledges that they have some difficulties maneuvering those stairs and they're unable to do that on a regular basis. Those are some clues that you get just by getting the history from patients. You can also observe them walking into the room. You can observe how they get onto an examining table. And in most of my clinic notes, I, I just make a note of, is this patient able to get onto the examining table independently? which requires a couple of steps, you're not able to do that, it's unlikely you're going to be able to tolerate a lot of aggressive therapies.
0: And so what are your stopping points? Let's say this man, we diverted him just Mm because he was a rectal cancer. And remarkably, he did very well because most of his symptoms were pain uh, Mm -hmm. and going to the bathroom. But what are the stopping points? If a patient cannot uh, get up on an examining table, would you not give chemotherapy or would you recommend that he be beefed up before going to surgery.
2: So generally, I do recommend anything that is palliative in nature. If we're talking about uh, someone who you expect to have a life expecting expectancy exceeding the period of benefit from that therapy, then you would want to pursue that therapy to get them to that point. If it's someone that has a lot of other comorbid medical conditions, so congestive heart failure, end stage renal disease, poorly controlled diabetes, but also social factors, they're not well cared for, they live independently without a lot of social support those would be stopping points for me so how am I as the provider going to be able to get this person through this therapy because I think that very much is our role. So it's not just the therapy, the ability to give it, but how do we get them through that therapy that's important. Mm-hmm. So I would say a, a, some of it is subjective, a lot of it is subjective. You have your, your your vital signs that you can measure, you have your medical history, you have the laboratory studies, you also have the, the symptoms that they present with and, and that could be helpful as well. And for this gentleman with an uh, obstructive tumor, definitely the palliation was helpful. That's just to, to improve his quality of life and then the discussion becomes, is this someone that I need to do a bit more for before we go to surgery? Um, you know, here it depends. If he really did have a, a good response to the palliative surgery, as your your um, uh, Yeah, so he, he, he ate, yeah. and then
0: he said, well, I'll do radiation, and he tolerated the radiation, and then he now says, well, we did a PET scan. There's no other diseases, Well, mm-hmm. then I want this out, but yeah. during that time period over several months, he's now able to get up and out of a chair, walks into the clinic on his own. uh, And it was just uh, in part his drive to get better, but also the lack of pain.
2: And, And you bring up a very important point. Oftentimes what we're seeing is someone who's not functioning well who is frail is direct frailty as a result of the disease that you are, being, uh, you are evaluating them for as opposed to their other pre-existing comorbid conditions that you may not have a lot of control over. So I think if it's related to their disease, they're having acute pain symptoms or subacute related to the new diagnosis, then you should address that. So for this gentleman, he's made a, a fantastic recovery thus far, I would pursue full court press in terms of his therapy. If he hadn't made a, a full uh, recovery, or this was because of some orthopedic condition that couldn't well be addressed, then that may be a little bit different.
0: So change the subject a yeah. little bit. So he's in his 80s. Yeah. Um, he got, uh, they gave him just the radiation. They, he he got the capsidabine which mm-hmm. he didn't tolerate. So he stopped that. We're going to take out this cancer. He's already diverted. So it's not going to change his lifestyle. Yeah. When at what age do you, in, let's say in a totally functioning person, would you dial back on the post-operative uh, chemotherapy for both colon and rectal cancer? I
2: don't have an age cutoff, I have a functional cutoff. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed is there are folks who are you know, half that age, who are in their 40s, who aren't able to tolerate aggressive therapy and that has to do with kind of their baseline level of function, their ability to recover, their personal motivation, but also their physical ability to to be able to withstand that therapy. So it's not age in and of itself, I have a number of patients who are in their 80s who are functioning well, who have this one condition, that's their predominant condition, they don't have a lot in terms of other uh, medical issues that aren't well controlled, and yeah. this is really what we need to tackle. But for those who are still frail, despite all of our efforts to support them, and, you know, I haven't mentioned all of our ancillary services that we use, we have social workers, we have our physical therapists, we have our nurses, we use our visiting nurses as well to check in on our patients, we use the family members, there are a lot of things that we can do to help support our patients in anticipation of the therapies that we're giving and potential complications. But having done all of those things, if this patient is still not able to, to withstand the therapy, then you'd want to have a very frank, open and honest conversation. One thing that I tell uh, all of my patients and their family, whoever their support system is up front, is you know, there are several options in terms of managing therapy. I always mention what the standard of care is. I always mention the availability of clinical trials and what those trials may include, but I also mention that you know, for certain subsets of patients, our older patients are included in that, but also our frail patients who may be younger are included in that, that there's option of not doing cancer-directed therapy. We always provide supportive therapy regardless of the condition, but there's an option of saying, I'm not going to do the standard of care, and these are the reasons why, and enumerating what our goal is, and being very clear upfront. And I think if you have those discussions up front no matter what your ultimate treatment decision is, if things take a turn for the worse. So if this gentleman had not recovered well from his diverting ostomy, then that's a, that's an a easy way then to bring back. Remember when we first met and we talked about the possibility that this may not go as planned, this may not go the way we wanted, you know, but we're still going to be here to, to care for you. And these are the ways that we can do that.
0: Well, thanks. We we are seeing this more and more mm-hmm. as our 70 and 80 and some even 90-year-olds are playing golf several Mm -hmm. times a week and uh, we really, really fit. And so I think it's going to become more of an issue. And it's really great to have some of these straightforward clinical tests to raise your awareness that maybe we got to get some help for this person, so. Yeah.
2: I think there's gonna be more coming. We have molecular diagnostics, and some of that is looking at, can we provide a molecular phenotype for patients who are frail? Can we actually test that? Um, and there are a lot of folks who are looking into that. There are a lot of resources online. There's a geriatric assessment that can be done, which takes some time, but can provide you with some concrete feedback on the likelihood of this person be able to tolerate treatment and toxicities that they may, may face
0: but for now, the get-up-and-go test is great. The get-up-and-go
2: is probably still the best one. All
0: right. Thanks, Nadine. You're welcome. We are with John Saltzman, and then we'll uh, talk about surveillance in the elderly.
3: I'm John Saltzman. I'm the director of endoscopy at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School.
0: So, John, we were discussing a patient of mine that I operated on in the early, when he was in his early 70s. He was healthy at that time. We did a right colectomy for a right colon cancer, and he did very well. And then somewhere along the line, he was told or figured that he did not need any more surveillance. And lo and behold, in his mid to late 80s, uh, he's actually physically, medically fit. He began having anal pain from what turns out to be rectal cancer, and began losing weight because he was afraid to eat. So I wanted to talk to you today about what is the issue with surveillance in these patients that are now living into their 80s and 90s where they've had a cancer in their 50s, 60s, or 70s?
3: Yeah, this is a really excellent question and and somewhat controversial um, uh, today, but I'm going to back up and first talk about screening because some People, physicians included, confuse the issues of screening and surveillance. So screening is looking for a polyp or a cancer, and surveillance is following up after you known you're known to have a polyp or a cancer. This patient falls into the surveillance category, which there's not a lot of recommendations, but in the screening category, there are recommendations by several different groups saying that above the age 75 you should consider whether you should do further screening or not and above the age 85 you probably should not do screening and this all is relative. Age is a relative thing. We we see people who are in their 50s and 60s who have multiple comorbidities who have short life expectancies who clearly should not undergo medical tests for screening purposes that have any associated morbidity, yet we see also people in their 70s, 80s, um, late 80s, who are physically fit, mentally fit, have um, good life um, expectancies, and um, may be appropriate for screening. So those decisions, I I find, are are individualized over the age 75. Um, When you get to surveillance, it's much less clear, because we know as people get older, their risk of cancer goes up. But also, the risk of undergoing procedures goes up as well, which is the concern. The risk goes up because of associated morbidities that the patient may have, uh, diseases, and um, whether when we're giving them sedation, whether we can cause problems from the sedation, and their tissues are are less strong. So there's a slightly higher risk Mm -hmm. of causing damage with a procedure such as a colonoscopy. On the other hand, their risk of having a polyp or a cancer depends on what their own family history their own personal history is. And somebody who's at at high risk for for problems, um, you need to go back, in my opinion, and look at them very carefully. You know, are they healthy enough to undergo uh, a procedure? And what is their life expectancy? If their life expectancy is over five years, it's probably uh, reasonable to undergo colonoscopy if they're in reasonable health. And certainly if it's over 10 years, I think it's uh, reasonable uh, to undergo colonoscopy in the surveillance mode. Similar to your patient, known colon cancer, did well afterwards, pretty healthy. To me, this person should undergo uh, procedures. Now, for me, what I think about is the patient's health, you know, just to sort of summarize, is the patient's health uh, at the time, what their anticipated life expectancy is, what is their risk for colon cancer, and their own personal values. And it is a conversation uh, with them to make sure um, they understand the issues.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We are getting more and more uh, healthy 80 and 85 and 90-year-olds, and this is an issue that we see in cardiac surgery, regular you know colorectal surgery, and what I'm finding is is that, uh, as you said, there are absolutely no guidelines. And one of the things that we all have, and and we'll be talking to others who are more expert at this, is how to get a metric for frailty and for robustness as you get older. I mean, all of us have our own um, ideas. That well, if the patient drives into the visit at 85 parks, and you know how it is to, I mean, that's a stress test right there at at, at our hospital, and walks up to your clinic, you have to say that that person, and and then you come to find out they're playing golf a couple times a week, that person is going to have a long sort of life expectancy relative to a a, a sort of a sick 85-year-old. And I think that's the sort of patient that you would recommend continuing surveillance if they've had something at age 70 or 72.
3: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a metric, a solitary metric uh, at this point to measure life expectancy. And so it's a general gestalt or feeling as you're looking at the overall number of comorbidities, what diseases do they have, and and what is their their ability to function right now. Uh, As you're telling me this, I'm thinking about a recent patient I had who came to me in my office to discuss whether they should undergo screening, not surveillance, a gentleman who was 89 years old, a retired lawyer who came in in a three-piece suit and tie, and basically was healthy, was taking no medications other than... A vitamin, and I, I sat down and talked to him about life expectancy and the benefit of colonoscopy, and be, and I came down saying, well, you know, only this is only valuable if you're going to live more than five or ten years. Your life expectancy at 89 is probably around five years, even if you're healthy. And he and he thoughtfully listened to me and then said, well, you know, I'm still interested in this, and I'd like to talk to my 106 year old aunt. I said what? He said, "Well, my aunt's 106." He goes, "My parents have died, but they are both over 100 when they died." And he goes, "I'd really like to be screened and and here, uh, looking at how healthy it is and looking at the family that he comes from, I thought it was." Perfectly reasonable, and we went ahead and did that procedure and it was the right decision in that case. So you really have to individualize it to the patient, and I think this was an unusually healthy 89-year-old, but still, you have to think even in these exceptional situations it may be appropriate.
0: What would you say would be the standard surveillance for a patient with a stage 2, stage 3 colon cancer, any age? It, it We tell patients they need a colonoscopy a year. Yep. Uh, and let's say that's clear or has one tiny polyp. We then usually say come back three years later. Yeah. But then people get into different recommendations after that year four visit. Should it be every three years after that? Every three to five years? What, what's your recommendation? Well,
3: my recommendation is five years after that, as long as that polyp seen on that second colonoscopy you describe it, that the three-year follow-up is a small, non-advanced follow-up. But I I would recommend that they keep being screened at five-year intervals. And I think that's reasonably conservative to pick up anything before it's clinically significant, yet is not overly aggressive so that we're doing needless procedures. However, there are not clear recommendations here.
0: Well, John, thanks very much, and we'll be uh, be in touch about all our eighty and ninety year olds who uh, need uh, colonoscopies. Great,
3: thanks, Ron. <laughs> really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> all right,
0: bye bye. So, Jeff, we have a very interesting topic this week, which is becoming more important as people live into their eighties and nineties. Is when do you stop surveillance? On patients who've had a colorectal cancer in the past, and if they come to you and they're very elderly, how do you judge clinically whether they're strong enough to go through some of the therapies that that we offer?
1: Yeah, and so this is certainly an evolving topic, and 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 different than I think how we even thought about it a decade ago, where you know people I think in their mind had an age cutoff in terms of what we do for patients, and 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 I think it's really clear that. Not every 80-year-old is the same. They have different functional statuses, and we really have to individualize that to the patient. We at least have some data from clinical trials showing that you know people benefit from adjuvant therapy in their 70s and even some in their 80s. Now, obviously, those are clinical trials where someone made a judgment that the patient was appropriate for participation in an adjuvant therapy trial. But, but again, I think that's what we have to do clinically for these patients, and, and it really is an area that needs more research to really have definitive test or or really waste for we can figure out the functional status because you're right people in their mid-80s their median survival is somewhere in their early to mid-90s and if as long as they don't have other comorbidities and and other things that could potentially be competing risks of, of, of mortality. In terms of surveillance I mean I think these people clearly have a risk of making more polyps albeit I would argue we don't have great data is there point where you don't make more polyps, or given the long period for polyps to develop into cancer, when when is appropriate to think about cutting off surveillance. But I think, again, if you have a very functional mid-80s, I saw a patient the other day who was 90, who I think should still have a surveillance colonoscopy, because he's very functional, and and, and probably his median survival is somewhere in his uh, mid to late 90s.
0: In surgery, we have a lot of objective data, which is actually not based on age, it's based on heart functional status, ASA uh, classifications, and things like that. And I think we look at the patients, and as Nadine talked about, the get-up-and-go test, if they can get up out of a chair, walk 20 feet, turn around, and then sit down, it really demonstrates lower motor function, balance, and all these other things that we, as we're younger, just totally take for granted. So if an 80-year-old has that, plus they have good cardiac function and good uh, pulmonary function, then the main thing we have to worry about with surgery is not so much the physical, we just worry a little bit about delirium and getting them through it both from the mental point of view and from the emotional point of view. And of course, people as they get uh, older need to be assessed for what their status is at home and who's gonna take care of them. Because as you know, they can get through a surgery or they can get through a difficult treatment, but then they need the support on the other end.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So it's a little bit more complicated, but not undoable, and I think we have to get a grip on this, probably for ourselves someday, hopefully, you know, to be surveyed and (laughs) and, uh, taken care of as we get older.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree, and again, I think it's, we certainly need a little bit more research, too, because I think the get-go up test is great, but I'm not sure it reveals everything, and a lot of people sometimes will say, you know, you can take a very healthy 80-year-old and make them an unhealthy 80-year-old if you give them too aggressive treatment sometimes, too, so it's really being able to truly understand how well they potentially would tolerate something. Yeah.
0: So I guess the take-home lessons are a little bit more granular research on who is a good candidate as they're older on getting our therapies and whether they should get therapies that are a little dialed back or whether they can go through their regular standard therapy. And then uh, the concept of surveillance, that really if you've had a cancer in your 60s, you really need to be surveyed the rest of your life, or until you really can't take the PrEP uh, or make it to the hospital.
1: Absolutely, I agree. And, and the, the real key is people can't just look at someone's age and make a decision in those areas.
0: Great. Well, great episode. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Ron. That's it for this episode of How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast. Some great discussions. Thank you to our guests, Nadine and John.
1: To find out more about this month's case, listen to all our episodes and access more information about colon and rectal cancer care, just visit howwetreat.org. We would also love your feedback or questions about our cases. Again, visit howwetreat.org to enhance your podcast experience.